Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. It seems like a super studcast. It is studcast number 200, and this is part two. That means it's another big one. And let's begin today with a quick recap of this past weekend for you. Congratulations, Stud, by the way, for being inducted into another Hall of Fame. This time in your birth city of Dyersburg, Tennessee, and at the arena named after Herb Welch, your grandfather's brother. So why don't we start? You tell us a little bit about that, Ron. And you had an well, incredible weekend. Yeah, yeah, man. It was a it was an unusual weekend, you know. And uh, uh, and it's a it's a big, wide state. I'll tell you that. I've forgotten how far it is across this state. You live around Knoxville, and you're going to Memphis. Uh, <laughs> you you got a pretty good ride in front of you. So uh, real, yeah. So uh, so. You, yeah, but it was it was really good. I had a great time at the Mid South Herb Welch Wrestleplex. That was the name of the building where they've been having wrestling for many many years, and uh, it was wonderful to meet a bunch of fans. And uh, obviously, like you mentioned, I got inducted into their Hall of Fame. And uh, and I want to say hello to all those that came out to see me last Saturday night. And it was really great to meet everybody. And you know, Dave, what really surprised me was the huge number of fans that listened to every studcast in that part of the country. Wow. Uh, wow. You know, and I ask a lot of fans intentionally. I just was curious how many listened. And every person I asked says, oh, yeah, I've listened to all of them. And I was like, wow, that's really tremendous. So, uh, you, you know, it seems like everywhere I go now, fans want to talk about <laughs> the studcast and the super studcast rather than my wrestling career. I mean, it's like, wait a minute, guys. I did shit before, you know. <laughs> I did things here before I started doing these studcasts and super studcasts. This ain't my first rodeo. <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, gosh, I, I do have a life, you know. So, <laughs> and I had one before I got into this. So, but it was really great. It was great seeing everybody, and uh, it was great going over and uh, being in my hometown, I guess, and you would say the town I was born in, and where a lot of wrestlers came from. I think in part of the induction, I, to, I made a little speech and and I and I told them I think they were sitting there, all of them, in the wrestling capital of the South in the 30s and the 40s. And Dyersburg, Tennessee, had more wrestlers uh, being trained there than any place in the Southern United States, that's for sure. So, oh, no so doubt. it was real good. I enjoyed I enjoyed the, the the trip over there. Did a virtual signing on Saturday. That was really really a big one. Uh, I had a lot of people that got involved and uh, were watching it and 
So had a, had a pretty decent weekend. Maybe you could deny or confirm this. Were you actually born in log a log cabin that you built? No, no, I didn't build it. <laughs> I can't say I didn't live in one, but I, I, I can't say I didn't build it. Right. You know? okay. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty old, but I ain't quite that old. You know? All right. Hey, listen, congratulations again on the weekend. That is, that's a really good thing and a sure sign that what you do here every week is really important to fans around the world. And listen, you were talking about Tennessee. You got a ton of fans, literally it's about Tennessee. So you got a ton of fans in Tennessee, but then I have folks here in Southeast Alabama that stop me. If we're, if we're out at a restaurant or something, I see a lot of folks in there, man, Hey, I like you on the stud cast or I like your horse. They seem to like my horse a lot for whatever reason. So stop making fun of my horses in the future. But anyway, it's, it's it's a popular show. And speaking uh, speaking of the fans and literally and, and on Facebook, I see them on Facebook. You still have you have fans in Australia, down under. You have fans around Japan and even in Europe. So anyway, I want to open this special studcast today with a huge thanks to all the fans for their tremendous response to that first part part one of studcast number 200. And again, it seemed like a super stud cast because it was absolutely loaded. Not only did they comment in record numbers, but you established another all-time record download of Studcast number 200, part one. Studcast are creating one of the biggest audiences in wrestling podcast, and we owe that to our fans. So that's a cool deal right there. Congratulations, Ron. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, and you're, you're absolutely right about that. It's all about the fans. And, uh, you know, last week's studcast was a really a very special one uh, for me. I really enjoyed putting it together. And I thank the fans, as you just did, for their great comments and for all the people who listened to it and uh, thousands and thousands of new people listened to it. So it's not just because of the 200, but because I had so many other wrestling podcasters and friends of mine that saddled up to congratulate me in uh, Super Studcast 40. Uh, the one in which you did with me, Dave. And, uh, you know, so I kind of owe them a little bit of thanks, too. And uh, also Mr. Edwards out of Bristol, Tennessee, that presented us with the great idea for the number 200. Uh, obviously, it was a first ever two-part episode uh, for for that type of thing. Uh, and it began with, obviously, a quick look at the first 200 episodes uh, with uh, audio clips. And in this one today, we're going to take the ride ahead, the second part of it. Well, and let's say hello to uh, Mr. John Edwards again. And listen, he was, uh, as you said, he was the one who submitted the the concept for that show and this show. But he's heard all two hundred studcasts, and that's a lot of them. So, and I think you got a lot of fans out there like John. Hey, John, thanks for listening. We appreciate that a whole bunch. And listen, I'm so proud to be a part of this, Ron. Your studcast has a totally unique format compared to all the other wrestling podcasts, and I've heard quite a few. You, you, even though you're not guest driven, you interact with fans to answer their questions on the learning tree and you don't critique any present wrestling events, but you take us back to the old school days and ways. And I think that's pretty cool. You simply tell week by week, a fascinating story. That's quite compelling. You started, and here's the cool thing. You started with your grandfather more than 100 years ago and his accomplishments. That's where the story began. In the first 200 episodes, you've basically covered the oldest and largest active wrestling family, your family, the oldest on the planet, 
from 1902 to May of 1977. You use your extensive knowledge of all aspects of the sport, wrestling, booking, promoting, advertising, and ownership to describe in every, in a very understandable way, how you manage to have success with so many different wrestling companies. Well, I haven't thought about it that way, Dave, but, uh, but, uh, you're correct about that in uh, in a whole lot of ways. And, and I, and I may well have as many as 500 or 600 more episodes before I finish with my wrestling career, uh, <laughs> which ends in 1988. And we're going to get to that in this program today, uh, with USA wrestling. One hour at a time or more one week at a time. And, all right. And speaking of different wrestling companies, that brings us back to the subject of this studcast, the ride ahead into future studcast. We ended part one of number 200 with an audio clip from the NWA world title match. You and Terry Funk, one that we remember, uh, especially October 10th of 76. So how do you, how do you lead off this ride ahead today, Ron? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to highlight the major things happening in my companies and territories. Uh, we're going to go back to the, Basically, uh, to the end of 1977, we're going to start here, basically where we stopped with the last studcast uh, about uh, May of 1977. And uh, we're going to present the studcast and uh, and cover the next 11 years in 1988, uh, right into 1988 when I'm going to uh, leave wrestling. So we're going to take this ride and year by year. We've been doing it week by week. Uh, we're going to take this one year by year until the sale of my last wrestling company. And I'm going to briefly discuss some particular wrestlers and angles during this studcast. This, uh, I call it a special studcast. Uh, I want to talk about a few wrestlers and a few angles, but the main focus on this one is going to be the big picture. What was affecting those companies and territories the most during those years? Yeah, I'm with you on that. All right. It sounds like we're going to hear a broad overview of where the companies were on a yearly basis. Uh, that's a pretty good summation right there. Now, you said it in a lot fewer words than I did, Dave, <laughs> as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, and I, hey, I could jump in and cut a promo in a heartbeat. So let's start where we ended in studcast number 199 in May of 77. That's where we were. Tell us what's to come for the remainder of 1977. Okay, so angle-wise, one of the best angles that we ever worked in southeastern Knoxville was done in that summer, the summer of 1977. And we touched on it a bit earlier in a couple of stud casts. It was a really crazy angle. It, it was all about busting concrete blocks on two wrestlers' heads with a sledgehammer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't call that anything but a crazy angle, that's for sure. And, uh, and I really can't wait to revisit that angle. And that's going to happen uh, pretty soon here and where we are in our time frame. The primary thing, the remainder of 1977 from me, was taking off some ring time. For the first time in my career, really, that happened basically starting in the summer of 1977. I became much more focused in that summer on buying another territory. After the huge success that we had on that Harley race night, in which we broke the all-time Coliseum record for a sports event. And that night set new goals for me. I had to find out if I could duplicate what was happening in Southeastern in some other part of the country. So I was originally focused on the purchase of the state of Ohio from the famous sheik, Eddie Farhat, 
who was out of Detroit, Michigan. My father and I were considering, obviously, becoming partners in the venture. And rather than resting every night, I was spending lots of time in the summer of 77 on the far side of the state of Tennessee, where my father lived. And we were trying to organize the purchase and make plans for how to operate a potential territory with at least 20 times larger uh, in size than Southeastern. And, and it probably had maybe 3 million more potential fans than Southeastern could have possibly had. Wow. Ohio had maybe 3 million more people than the entire Southeastern uh, ar- arena, right? Yeah. The, the, than the entire Southeastern area, that whole part of the country. Easily, Dave, 3 million more people. Uh, three cities alone, Columbus, Cleveland, and Cincinnati, were each one of them about four or five times larger than Knoxville. And there was at least five to seven more cities in the state that were larger than Knoxville as a city. So, gosh, yes, it was a massive area with a huge population. So uh, uh, it was a lot, of, a lot of thought having to be put into that. Yeah, no doubt. I, I misspoke. I said arena. I think area was the word I was looking for. All right. But in the meantime, what happened that made Ohio not happen? So with, with that many more people, you would think that territory would be a lot bigger, but evidently kind of dismal comparatively. Well, a, a lot of things, a lot of things really had uh, jumped into this uh, discussion in my mind. My father and I, uh, it turned out we were two from two very different generations. Uh, especially about our ideas of what wrestling should be and was all about. And when I finally realized that, I kind of lost interest in Ohio and being in business with my father for that fact. Uh, And uh, and one other major thing happened that we're going to discuss in the future studcast that uh, was the straw that broke the camel's back. So, you know, we uh, bottom line, though, it was probably one of the best things that could have happened at that time for me. but, But why do you say that, Ron? Well, actually, I got three reasons. Uh, I don't know if my being a Southern boy, I could have taken those cold winters there, man. <laughs> Years later, when I came, got went to Cincinnati in the hockey business, I found out what being that far north in the winter was all about. <laughs> wow. It's nasty up there when you're an old Southern boy and you're not used to that. <laughs> the second reason is fans in the northern United States were accustomed to a very different style of wrestling than those fans in the South. And, uh, you know, I might not have been able to uh, have the same success up there that I had in the South. And the last reason was to me probably the most important. I realized that being in business with my father might ruin our relationship and drive us apart. Mm. And uh, no amount of success would have been worth that. Did you did you give up on the second territory idea? Oh, no, not certainly didn't. Uh, just a few days, in fact, before Christmas. In the same year, 1977, I finalized the, a deal to buy the territory known as Gulf Coast Rising. And my father had created that territory in the early 50s, and he had sold it to his cousins, the Three Fields Brothers, in 1959. And after they purchased it from him, they named it Gulf Coast Rising. And uh, so I'd, I'd gone and made a deal with Lee Fields to buy Gulf Coast Wrestling from him. And I would be opening my second territory in 1978. All right. And how did that go? Well, are you, are you riding your horse, Mr. Pickles, again today? <laughs> I mean, we, we, we aren't going to gallop into the future here, by golly. We're only going to walk into it. We're going to take a little peek at it, and we're going to move on. 
because there's so much really to come in this studcast about the events in the future. Uh, I can't go really deep into any particular subject, but I want to make sure I touch on everything in the 11 years that we're going to be discussing today. Oh, I get it. And I know your listeners get it too. So I've already reined him in. So Mr. Pickles and I are going to follow along behind you and, and lightning, of course, from here on out. So where are we heading to next slowly? Okay. We're going into 1978 and it's <laughs> another big year of growing success in Southeastern Knoxville. And obviously it, uh, it, it, it we form and uh, start the second territory, Southeastern Pensacola. The old Gulf Coast Territory, uh, it turned out to be a dead one. You know, and in the 1978 Studcast, we're going to learn about what I was about to experience in, in, in that Gulf Coast area down there. Uh, we're going to find out what happens when a young and inexperienced buyer of a company that doesn't do his due diligence or proper research about that company is going to face, right? It's kind of like a it's kind of like being a student and you haven't done your homework and you really didn't pay attention in class. And now it's time to take the test. <laughs> so, except there's a, a big difference between that school and, and owning a business because of the school don't cost you anything. But that business mistake can cost you a heck of a lot of money uh, yeah. years later. So uh, early 1978 turned out to be a whirlwind of activity in Knoxville, obviously. We were beginning the preparation for opening southeastern Pensacola. Uh, our normal crew there almost doubled in Knoxville for about three months from January in, into almost uh, uh, the uh, beginning of March. We were beginning to prepare for that expansion, and it was going to take three months before we even had the first match in southeastern Pensacola. And I had no experience here, obviously, with how to expand uh, your company into a second territory. And neither did few other owners of territories because it was just rarely done, to be honest with you. It was rarely done because it was almost impossible to do. It was very difficult to accomplish. So those stud casts, when we get into 1978 and talking about that, are going to paint the sad picture, man, that I, I stuck my uh, my foot in my mouth and, uh, and I made a huge mistake uh, getting started there. But the two territories, what happened is the two territories meant I was going to have to travel a lot more in 78 and 79 than I'd ever done before. I had spent from 1974 up to 1978, basically in one territory. I just lived in Knoxville. I never went anywhere. So Bob Armstrong, he went to the South End with me and as a baby face, and he had never healed at that point. And I would be working as a heel again. And I hadn't been a heel in five years since 1975. So, uh, you know, both Bob and I, we're working major cities in both the territories. And we're flying to get there or either, you know, uh, much more than I had ever flown up to that point. We're having to fly. We we're having to drive some trips. Uh, Bob and I were really, really busy trying to work both ends of this, of this big area. So southeastern Pensacola which uh, we call the Southern Division, was so dead when we opened it up that we had to give the money back to fans and we had to cancel several events because oh. there just wasn't enough people in the building to run the match. You know, and uh, so these upcoming studcasts are going to cover both territories, cards, the TVs and the attendance, and they're going to be loaded with history. Oh, no doubt. Are you serious about that? But you, you actually 
with Southeastern Knoxville, you never did anything like that. But giving the money back to fans as you move down to the South and that territory, that's pretty incredible right there. <laughs> I'd never done it before. I can tell you that. Uh, right. The stories about struggling to build and save Southeastern Pensacola are going to make those upcoming studcasts extremely interesting when we get <laughs> into that time frame. I can tell you yeah. that. And starting Pensacola uh, in 1978 was going to make Knoxville, which I started in 1974 when I got there, it's going to make Knoxville look like a money machine. <laughs> I mean, since Pensacola was a sieve, man, I, I just kept throwing money in it, and Knoxville at least was holding its head above water. Yeah. So uh, it was a unique experience for me. So Bob and I, we, we had a really hardworking crew, man, and that first crew that went to the Southern Division down there in Pensacola. And uh, we cranked up a ton of heat there really, really fast, really right away. And we had riots every night. And in, in a really unbelievably short six months, we had brought that territory from having to give the money back because there wasn't enough fans to selling out buildings. It was really amazing. So those stud casts during that time, especially when we start talking about these riots every night, they're going to freak out fans. Uh, <laughs> by the fall of 1978, Bob went back to work for the Georgia company for a short time. And I returned to Knoxville, except for an occasional important event in the Southern Division. And sometimes me and Bob would both, he'd come out of Georgia and I would come out of Knoxville. We'd both end up down there in the Southern Division somewhere, uh, wrestling on the same car trying to keep that momentum that we had gained in that first six months of operation with the Southeastern Pensacola. We hired Louis Tillette as a booker for Southeastern Pensacola. That's the same Louis Tillette had been in Knoxville for much of 1976. Mm -hmm. And he happened to be the guy who found Terry Bolia, the future Hulk Hogan in that same time frame. Mm -hmm. So for those who may not have known, and, uh, you know, all the time I get people that go, uh, where, do, where do you think Hulk Hogan came from? He came from southeastern Pensacola. That's where he got <laughs> his start. Yeah. So, and, uh, and then a young Hulk during the same time period and Andre the Giant, they drew several huge crowds in southeastern Pensacola in late 1978 and into 1979. And other than those Andre and Hogan cards, Louis Tillette really struggled to get quality talent down there. He did manage to get Ox Baker in the crew, and uh, and obviously Ox was a perfect opponent for Hogan because they were pretty much the same size. But I think back on that combination, and I can't imagine what kind of bad matches those two had for <laughs> fans out there that that uh, know uh, know Hogan and uh, and Ox very well. Uh, that had to be wow, some of the worst ever. And consequently, the, you know the momentum Bob and I had created. In uh, the spring and early summer of 1978, it wasn't going to continue with those type of matches. So Dick Steinborn, that also had been in Knoxville for almost two years, we talked about him a lot. He was he went to the Southern Division. He gladly went down there. He wanted to help out. He went down to help with his book with booking ideas. He also did some promotional work in cities like Montgomery. Plus, he made occasional appearances as a co-host on the Southeastern TV show with Charlie Platt. So 1978 was basically another extremely strong year for Knoxville, but a very difficult one for Pensacola, especially in the early months. And when we opened there in March of 78, from that point where it was so dead, 
it ended up on a high that uh, was also by the end of the year, very, that territory, we didn't have to worry about it failing uh, from that point on. And obviously there were bad days ahead due to the expansion. My going back and forth between the two territories took away Knoxville's continuity of my being there every night in every town. Uh, and it was going to ultimately lead to something very bad the next year of 1979. And uh, the success of the two territories in 1979 were going to dramatically almost switch completely. Wow. See, this is fascinating already, and we've only done a year and a half. You mentioned 1979. Is that where we're going to be going next, Ron? Uh, yes, sir. It is, Dave. 1979 uh, it was undoubtedly the most disappointing year of my entire wrestling career. Uh, Southeastern Pensacola, it, it had crawled out of its struggle to survive, but Bob Armstrong and I had to focus elsewhere uh, in 1979. Knox, Knoxville was going to basically self-destruct in 1979. And the listeners will be shocked, those that didn't live in that area and don't know, they're going to be shocked to hear the down and dirty stud cast of the Knoxville War of 1979 mm. that began in May of that year. Wow. And it, it's a sad story of the best small territory in the world dying a horrible death in six months. The cancer that killed it was greed. And five key wrestlers walked away from the company that had loved and been extremely successful in the company to attempt to take the company over. That five was Bob Rube, Ronnie Garvin, Bob wow. Orton Jr., Ron Wright, and Boris Malenko. All of them left Southeastern without a notice, all of them on the same night, and they opened up their own promotion the next week called All-Star Wrestling. So, and then that was the kiss of death for territories uh, when you started to have competition opposition, whatever you wanted to call it. And then what they did is is guess where they went to get their TV and their commentator, Dave? They went right back to the old TV station I'd be on. They hired old my, my good friend, Big Jim Hiss, hmm. <laughs> that I'd fi fired about four years earlier. Right, right. <laughs> and, wow. and then they were joined by the Poffo family, which was operating wrestling in northern Kentucky. That was Angelo, Lanny. And the future star himself, Macho Man Randy Savage. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they they put together a little bit of a company themselves. And uh, so the Knoxville War of 1979, my affiliation with the NWA, was going to bring a lot of great talent, maybe best ever to Knoxville during this time frame. But it couldn't end that war that all that all-star wrestling's determination to destroy what had become the gold standard for small territories. I'm talking about southeastern Knoxville. We were the gold standard for small territories. They tried everything. And when all else failed for those guys, they devised the most diabolical plan that if they have implemented it, it could have destroyed the entire sport of professional wrestling, I believe. Mm. It, it was called the Plan B video. Uh -huh. and, and each one of the five, one at a time in this video, broke kayfabe and told everything that wrestling was really all about. In a video that lasted less than 15 minutes, they gave away every secret wrestling had. And uh, thankfully, the video was never exposed until almost 40 years later. Crazy. Are you kidding, Ron? They, you mean they were considering going public 
with a video like that across the country and killing professional wrestling everywhere. I mean, so it sounds like future studcast are going to be more unbelievable each moment as we get there. I can't can't wait to get to that 1979 period Plan B video studcast. That's going to be interesting. Well, the 1979 studcasts are definitely going to be like no wrestling story ever told before, Dave. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of oppositions and a lot of competitions and a lot of wars for cities, but I don't think there was ever one that was uh, quite as bad as the Knoxville War. And the way they handled themselves was uh, was really the main the reason for it. So I firmly believe if I hadn't purchased Gulf Coast Wrestling and stayed in Knoxville, through 1978 and early 79, instead of going down and getting involved on the Gulf Coast, then my wrestling world would have been totally different. But then I think about it, uh, you know, at the same time, if it had not been for owning another territory to go to after this problem and that bad experience, I think I might have left the sport entirely, forever. Wow, Ron. So... What stories have yet to be told in future studcast? I mean, th- that that's incredible. And that, that's a lot to get to. Five of your friends turning on you and trying to take over your business. I can definitely see why 1979 was not such a good year. <laughs> yeah. Horrible. Maybe is a better <laughs> word for it. Wow. It sure was a horrible year. And uh, But, you know, Dave, God works. The, the old saying, God works in mysterious ways. Yeah. But six yeah. years later, after Knoxville had been totally dead as a wrestling city for years after we left, we returned there with a new company called Continental Wrestling. We called that returning event the Tennessee Homecoming. Uh, Bob Armstrong was on that card. Robert was on that card. Jimmy Golden was on that card. Tony Charles, Jerry Stubbs, the Mongolian Stomper, a University of Tennessee football star, Doug Furness, who was going to be a a huge star in Japan and myself <laughs> and many more were on that card. Wow. But, but so how'd you do that night? Well, we sold out the Coliseum for the first time in six years for a wrestling event. Wow. It, it wasn't going to be the last sell out there either. I tell you, uh, we were back there for good, man. We, we went back uh, just like it was before the Knoxville war started and maybe even better, maybe even stronger. See, that's the thing. Your life has been part miracle, absolutely remarkable on top of part miracle. All right. So we are, I guess now we're going to be going back to the start of a new decade and 1980 Southeastern Knoxville had been sold and was gone. What happens with Southeastern Pensacola in 1980? Well, we set wrestling on fire that year in Southeastern Pensacola. Bob Armstrong, Rob, Jimmy Golden, and I all were partners in that business and that company in southeastern Pensacola. And for the first time, all of us were living in Pensacola and working that territory. So besides the four of us, we were loaded with tremendous talent. We had the Mongolian Stomper. We had Jola Duke. We had our newly created original Midnight Express, the first and only Midnight Express at that time. Norvell Austin, Dennis Condry, and Randy Rose. We had Don Carson with us. We had Ricky and his brother, Robert Gibson, who's going to be in the future rock and roll, uh, rock and roll star. And we also had three future WWE Hall of Famers in that group in 1980. The Honky Tonk Man, Wayne Ferris, mm-hmm. Dr. D, David Schultz, 
and Ed Leslie, who we booked as Eddie Boulder, but he's going to become Brutus the Barber Beefcake later yeah, on. Yeah. So, so we had we had really, really brought in some big time guys. Uh, we had purchased Gulf Coast Wrestling in 1978, which operated along the Gulf Coast. Basically, that territory ran from Tallahassee east to the Mississippi border and north about Montgomery, Alabama. And in October of 1980, that's what year we're talking about, we added another major market to southeastern Pensacola, and that was the city of Birmingham. And along with Birmingham, we also got the entire northern part of Alabama. So now it brought it brought uh, and we bought that uh, Birmingham and the North Alabama from Nick Goulas out of Nashville. We paid just seventy five thousand dollars for it. And we paid for it in cash. One of the first times we paid for a company or a market in cash. So due to our great TV ratings, by 1980, we were really cranked up. And all those southeastern Pensacola stations, we were able to immediately get on the largest station in Alabama the big Channel 6 out of Birmingham. Goulas, he had killed much of his former territory and my grandfather Roy's territory. You know, Roy Roy was gone by then. He had already died. But uh, Goulas killed Tennessee, he killed Alabama, he killed Mississippi and Kentucky, uh, all of the areas he was run in by making his own son, George Goulas, his champion. What? Yeah, yeah, he made George Goulas his champion. And George was as far from a great wrestler as anybody could possibly be. Oh, goodness. And yeah. it was so obvious to fans that Goulas, Nick, pushing his own son, killed his company. Yeah. So Birmingham, like all the other major markets uh, that he was in, was dead. But our tremendous wrestling show that we had uh, and our huge TV station that we were on right away, it quickly caught fire, man. And after only about two months in Birmingham, so did southeastern Birmingham catch on fire. I mean, wow, Birmingham went crazy in less than two years. Now, we had gone in there in 1978. We had double the size of southeastern Pensacola and now ran in Alabama's three largest cities at that point, Birmingham, Mobile, and Montgomery, as well as other Alabama cities like Huntsville, Dothan, Florence, Tuscaloosa. We ran in Pensacola and Panama City in the Florida Panhandle, uh, and we were soon going to be running Tallahassee uh, out of uh, Pensacola, and we would also be operating Mississippi as well. So unlike southeastern Knoxville, where we had only one major city all those years, Knoxville, uh, and it ran six nights a week, we now ran in a major city six nights a week. <laughs> Every night was in a major city, mm-hmm. and we ran seven nights a week. We ran seven days a week, uh, year round. We had more than 365 events every year. And sometimes we ran two major cities on the same day. So in 1980, Southeastern Pensacola shattered the all time Southeastern Knoxville records that, uh, you know, and we had just started there. So didn't take long for having those big markets and those big cities for us to eclipse what the biggest, uh, years we'd ever had in Knoxville. Yeah, and see, that's what makes the studcasts uh, that are ahead so appealing. Uh, the cards and the TV shows that were making that happen in 1980 stood. So, all right, tell us, uh, can we get an idea of what happened in 81? Absolutely. So, in 81, we restructured our entire business model. 
Robert and I had began, you know, uh, to alternate as bookers. We had booked uh, co-bookers in, in Knoxville, and we stopped doing that, and we decided that we would alternate as bookers every other year. So we each put together our crew in the months before we took the book over and before we switched the book. And every September, the new booker would bring in an entirely new crew. Now, this process worked great for, for so many reasons. Talent got stale and, uh, and it ceased to draw in a, in a small territory where you were going to cities week after week. It, it, you, you could get a year out of guys, but it was hard to go beyond that. So bringing in new talent in September, which was one of the hardest times of the year to draw because school started back, but it kept business up at a bad time of the year because fans were starting to see all this new influx of talent in September. And they didn't understand what was going on behind the scenes, but gosh, all these new talents coming in and business just grew instead of dropping like it was in most territories. We were upping our, our business in September. We also, uh, as part of this new new business process and business model, we kept some of the old crew that was still over to do jobs for the new crew that was just coming in. So it got those new guys over quicker because they were beating big stars. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so and and by enhancing the talent that way, it made the cards bigger because we had to add a match or two in September because we were carrying a bigger crew. That also helped to draw more fans, you know, and in a time of the year where most territories were seeing much smaller crowds, we were drawing sometimes more than we were in the summertime. So momentum was never lost in this process and sometimes even gained in, uh, in that difficult time of the year. So I started working with Bob as a co-booker in 1981. We're back to 81. It was our year to book and to find talent. So we brought in that year, Ron Bass. We brought in one of the best Japanese stars in the world, Mr. Mr. Saito, that would go home and train some of the best Japanese wrestlers in their sports history. He, he spent a, a year with us, and while he couldn't speak any English, he left there uh, speaking English and a much better wrestler than he had come uh, wow. when, he, when he started. Austin Idol made his first Southeastern debut in that year. And another great star that was a big star for a long time along the Gulf Coast, but hadn't been there in a while, Ken Lucas returned that year. So that same year, the NWA Rookie of the Year worked in Southeastern, and that was Brad Armstrong. And he was going to be big time in the coming years as he developed. Tony Charles was there, and he had these tremendous matches with Les Thornton. Uh, they were they were both there for a big portion of that year. Tony there a lot for a lot longer than that, but Les was there for a big portion of that year. The Mongolian Stomper had been there, but we turned him babyface for the first time ever in his career, and we called him the Masked Midnight Stallion. And I worked uh, during that same year, '81, several times with Ernie the Big Cat Lad, who was working for Mid South right next door to us, and Bill Watts. And Ernie and I set several attendance records on those shows. Uh, on those shows, it was 6-9 against 6-9. Both he and I were the same height. Wow. Uh, same, same year, same territory, Michael Hayes, who was born in Pensacola, and Terry Gordy of the Free Birds returned home, and they spent a lot of time in Southeastern against each other that year. We didn't have them as partners, 
we had them warring against each other. So uh, we had a lot going on on every TV and obviously on every card. And stud cast from 1981, when we get to that time frame, are going to be filled with stories of another phenomenal year of Southeastern growth. We broke another all-time record at the box office that year in 1981. So uh, the last thing I want to talk about in 81 is I wanted to blow up TV ratings across the territory in 1981. So I went back to the old Southeastern Knoxville formula. I made the biggest buy in Southeastern history of billboards. I bought billboards in every major market from the Gulf Coast to the Tennessee state line. I had a $30,000 buy with Lamar Advertising. That was 90000 in today's money. I spent ninety grand in today's money. Uh, and f- as part of that deal, I got more free billboards than what I bought as part of the deal. Wow. The focus was on publicizing TV more than house shows. Because after all, Dave, if fans got fired up by watching your TV, they were definitely going to show up for the live event. Oh, yeah. That's where you definitely cash in. I mean, you, you proved that how many consecutive weeks in Knoxville. So anyway, Studcast about all of this in 1981 are going to be really extremely interesting as we move forward. I remember a lot of the wrestlers and TV shows from that time frame. So fans, but fans in part of the country had never seen wrestlers of that quality and certainly not any angles like what you guys were working at the time. So that's going to be cool. So, but what was happening in 1982? Okay, so 1982 was Rob's year to book. So I was taking a little time off uh, when the book changed hands. And uh, Bob and Brad, they stayed with Rob uh, for a couple of extra weeks, almost a month, uh, just to get some of his new crew over, which was really significant for Rob. uh, Because when when guys started beating Bob and Brad, (laughs) they were top guys in everybody's mind at that point. So his crew was outstanding also. He had Joe Ledoux. He had a great Canadian young kid named Jacques Rougeau that's going to go on to be a WWF star. And uh, those matches between Ledoux and Jacques Rougeau, they rocked those houses, man, that year. Uh, Rob brought in the original, the first ever New Zealand sheep herders, Jonathan Boyd and Luke Williams. And those guys got over big time. So, <laughs> so and Bob and I and Brad, we went into the Atlanta territory after a few months to get exposure off of Ted Turner's WTBS satellite TV station. Ah. And that station's satellite sent a signal around the world. So when you wrestled on there, you were seen all over the world. So we started to do this every other year. When we weren't booking, me and Bob and Brad was usually there. Brad even stayed there after a while. Uh, we would go into Atlanta just to get matches and be seen on that TV. So we had exposure worldwide. And we stayed there. They stayed there longer than I did every time I went, every year we went, because, uh, you know, they wanted to be seen on those shows. It was worth a lot of money for you and your future to be seen on those shows. So working on that TV could make you an international star. So I was supposed to be off for a year, but I could never stop thinking about ways to make more money for my company. So that fact made me want to check out some islands in the Caribbean for future matches. I knew now there was a station 
that islands down there that had never seen wrestling were going to be seeing wrestling. So some islands had never experienced any type of wrestling. And uh, obviously, Ted Turner's big old satellite station was going to reach them. So I knew I could get even better talent by being able to offer them an occasional show or two in the Caribbean. <laughs> right? I tell you, I fly them down to the Caribbean. Uh, they're going to make a great payoff. And uh, even more so, uh, by showing them a great t- time that, that for a couple of days, man, I built relationship with my wrestlers. And relationship meant everything between promoters and wrestlers. Uh, they'd work for me for less money than they were accustomed to if I treated them special. And boy, taking them on these caveman trips. Some stud casts from 1982 are, are going to take us down there to the Cayman Islands where we're going to run several events in the future that's going to make history down there. Are you kidding, dude? You ran wrestling matches in the Cayman Islands. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wasn't running boxing. So, yeah, it was it was a good old wrestling, man. And uh, heck, yes, man. I took wrestling <laughs> to the Cayman Islands. And yeah. those people loved it. They went crazy for it. And uh, and the, the stud cast that we're going to be talking about, these, these island shows, fans are going to be amazed at how we did these shows. Uh, we didn't have ring lights. Uh, they didn't have uh, uh, closed stadiums. Uh, right. We had to set up wire and fences. We had to hang the ring light from a uh, from a crane. Wow! <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, we just we improvised, but we created wrestling as a sport for them down there, and they came by the thousands. Uh, uh, half the island would be at the matches. Well, I know you talked about wrestling in the in the Caribbean, in the Bahamas before where they just turned up in droves. So anyway, that's that's more of this and you uh, with the booking and managing of all of that. So can't wait for that ride, Ron. So what else was happening in 1982? Well, I don't remember a lot about the particular cards and the TVs and the angles because I wasn't booking. Rob was the booker. But the great thing here about this stud cast is I have all the cards from around that territory all the way from the beginning of it uh, to the end in 1987 when I sold out. So, uh, and, and I've got all the cards, I've got the, all the TVs. So each stud cast uh, is going to be just like the ones we're in this time frame. I'll be able to see those cards. I'll be able to remember what the angles were mm-hmm. and what we were doing on TV. And uh, so the stud cast, the content's going to just keep getting better because the talent kept improving. The territory was getting bigger. More things and better things were happening as we went along. All right. So I think I know the answer to, to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So you're going to be doing the same type of stud cast when we get into the 80s as you're doing today. Correct. I want to still go week by week. I want to take my time. I want fans to be able to understand why things happen, how things happen, why we did what we did, who was there. Uh, I want to continue that that one week, uh, one stud cast and, uh, and be able to take fans on a complete ride uh, for the next 11 years through not just Southeastern, but through Continental and then through USA Wrestling. So it's a continuing story. Basically, Dave, that's what it is. And the good thing about that is the story, like I said, is just going to get better as it goes along. And, yeah. and here's a here's a good example. And thinking about this, this is something that happens in 82. 
that's a great example of what these studcasts will be about. Uh, there was one major match in the late 1982 that was going to change everything in Southeastern. Uh, Bob Armstrong and I were going to take over the booking again in 1983. This is right at the end of 82. And when we opened Southeastern Pensacola in 1978, I was a heel and Bob was a babyface. I turned babyface in 1980 uh, in Southeastern Pensacola. And Bob and I were good friends for 1980, 81, 82 on TV, buddies, partners. We did a lot of things together. We were tight, close. So we were about to take over the book from Rob in late 1982. Uh, Brad was already wrestling, uh, you know, and he was a great worker by this point. Scott and Steve were training, and they were going to soon be ready to start their careers. Jimmy Golden and, and Rob were both baby faces like me. And Rob had been a baby face since his arrival in Pensacola in 1979. Mm. Jimmy was a heel for a brief period in early 1980 and 81 in an angle against me, but he had turned back a babyface in 1982. So we were sitting there with Southeastern Wrestling, and we had two of wrestling's most dynamic families, and we're both in the same territory. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do with that, Dave? Right? I mean, mm -hmm. Bob and I, you know, we traveled everywhere together, and why not? We were both babyfaces, and we kept asking ourselves, what are we going to do with this? We've got uh, two big families here, but we're all baby faces. So we came up with a unique and a fascinating idea that's going to set the path for our entire future. Mm -hmm. Both families, all the, all the sons, all the cousins, all of us involved, we're going to have a future built around this one night, one event. <laughs> so, you know, to do something, you know, and what we figured out is to do something with Bob that he had never done before in his 17 years of in the wrestling business at that point. He'd been wrestling for 17 years. He had never been a heel. Mm. And what we did is we turned him heel as a referee in the match with Ric Flair in mm. Mobile, Alabama, in front of more than 10,000 fans. And many future studcasts are going to go into depth about this angle and how it started the longest-running family feud in wrestling history. From 1982 to 1987, the Tennessee Stud was born, the Bullet was born, the Stud Stable was born, <laughs> and some of the greatest angles ever created in wrestling was born in, in those years. They should have called it the Hatfields and McCoys. That's awesome. All right, so listen, I was a big fan when that heel turned, uh, that heel turn happened by Bob Armstrong, when all that went down. Uh, so I, I'm kind of looking forward to the Studcast stories about the transformation of a hero into one of the most despised humans on earth, if you can believe that. There are so many amazing studcasts to come, Ron. This part two of the 200th studcast is really opening our eyes to what is ahead. So I know we're about to hear a little bit about 1983 now. So, so where to from here? Well, 1983, it starts with a bang. Obviously, we, at the end of 82, did this tremendous angle. And Bob Armstrong became one of the most hated wrestlers in the world. Uh, but if you weren't a Southeastern fan, Dave, uh, and you live somewhere else in the country, you didn't know it. Right. It was only for our fans, basically, that Bob was a heel. So yeah. most fans around the world, they weren't ever aware of what was going on in Southeastern because we didn't push to be in the big run uh, in the magazines. We didn't uh, we didn't 
we didn't need it. We were selling out our buildings. We felt right. like, they were, you know, why, why publicize it? You know, we don't need to. So fans in other parts of the country where Bob had always been a star babyface, they wouldn't have believed what he was doing if they had seen these shows. I'm sure when you lived in Atlanta and you came down and you spent a weekend in Panama City and you watched uh, Southeastern, you went, fans went, oh, my God, what is Bob Armstrong doing? Right, right. Listen, <laughs> you guys kind of set that up because you were such good friends, and, and you were, actually. But, but for a couple of years prior to this, you were everywhere together on TV and matches, all that kind of stuff, uh, partnering. And, and, and so it was the, the friendship was building in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. We took a great friendship and decided, man, let's don't just split up. Let's have you kill me, Bob. (laughs) 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 Somewhere close to it. Right. So (laughs) so, uh, along with that fantastic crew and and then, then along with this fantastic crew that we've got in 1983, I'm going to return six months after that angle, after my third knee surgery. And, uh, and I'm going to take on the man that started all of it. And that angle and that summer created the biggest box office ever in Southeastern, Continental, or any wrestling company I ever owned. We just exploded. That business exploded at that point. Bob had such heat. I came back uh, when people thought I would never come back. I had three knee surgeries. And uh, so it was only the beginning of all the things that were yet to happen between the Fuller brothers and Jimmy Golden against the Armstrongs. And uh, I remember that summer of 1983 fans had a hard time getting near the Houston County farm center where I was on wrestling night. It held about 5,000 fans and you were lucky to get in before it sold out. All right. So are you ready for 1984? I guess so, my man. Uh, We're, we're rolling along here. So, uh, so I want to give listeners an idea of what kind of things were going on in Southeastern around 1984 involving Bob and myself. We had both gone back to Georgia Championship Wrestling after this long angle kind of uh, slowed itself down. Uh, we both went back, both wrestled as babyface on Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was the Turner Channel. And uh, and he he had left when he left Southeastern. He was still a heel, but uh, you know when he went to Georgia, he stayed just like before. As and every other year, it was Rob's year then. That uh, so he stayed longer than I did. But uh, when I went back home. I went home before he did, and he was not there. He had been a heel, and now he's in Georgia working as a babyface. And that was going to work toward some a way to get him back to where he used to be. So when I went home, we had a really red-hot tag team that was the Southeastern champions, was Arn Anderson and Jerry Stubbs, who was calling himself Mr. Olympia at that point. And I was still a babyface, and so was Robert and Jimmy. Now, Stubbs and Anderson's during this time frame were the Southeastern champions, and they had managed to run both Rob and Jimmy out of Southeastern. Two different uh, loser team town matches, both of them were gone. So I went back in there by myself in 1984, and uh, those two guys focused right away on getting rid of me, just like they had done to Rob and Jimmy. They didn't want any Fullers there. They didn't want any the Goldens. They wanted to be king. So about that same time, and now I'm a babyface. Fans really loved it. I came back. I started taking on Bob. We were just selling out. So about the same time, Bob's working in Georgia, and he has this horrible accident working out in a gym in Columbus, Ohio. 
and he almost tore his nose off his face. Ooh. Uh, dropped weights on his face, and he oh. came back to Southeastern yeah. and went directly, immediately into the hospital. And uh, he had his t- entire face reconstructed. Wow. Because he had just uh, broken bones and his face. I couldn't recognize him. When I went to see him in the hospital, I didn't know who he was. It was really horrible. So while those operations were going on, I was dealing with Stubbs and Anderson every week. And I started bringing in these big name partners every week, trying to win their Southeastern tag belts. Bob finished his surgery. He was getting healthier. And then he started appearing on TV every week. He either came in person or we shot a video of him. And uh, and, and all these videos, every time he was there, he told Charlie Platt, I, well, I've had a change of heart, man. I realized what I did wrong with Ron and how horrible it was. And, and uh, he kept wanting to talk to me about forgiving him. I wouldn't talk to him. Uh, I went weeks and weeks with him begging just to, to have me please just sit and talk to me about it. And mm-hmm. I would say, no way. I don't want anything to do with you ever again. So his face looked so different at this point because, he, he you know, they couldn't construct his face exactly like it looked before. Yeah. And the fans became very sympathetic toward him, man. You know, he looked different. And, you know, so he automatically started turning baby face a little bit again just by people seeing him week after week and them going, wow, look at him, man. What? And imagine how bad he was hurt. So every week he we showed these videos of him. Uh, he was back in the gym, man. He was really lifting heavy. He was looking great. And every time he did these videos, he would apologize to me. He'd beg me to forgive him for what he did with Ric Flair and how he cost me the world title. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, and he begged me to take me back, take him as a partner. He says, you're bringing in people from all over the world. Here's the guy. I'm your man. You want to beat him? I'm your man. And I, and I just kept saying, no, no way. I have no part of him. So wow. I even brought in Andre the Giant. And Andre and me couldn't get it done. So, you know, live on TV, then we had a match one Saturday, and it was me, uh, and I think it was uh, McCord. I mean, uh, it might have been, uh, I can't remember the young kid's name who was my partner. But we were wrestling on television against Arn and Stubbs. And uh, they hurt the kid in the early in the match. And then they both started on me. And they had a manager named Sonny King. And he got on me as well. And they, they did a big, they did a job on me, man. I was bleeding pretty badly. And uh, Bob, well, nobody knew he was even in the building. And all of a sudden, man, here he came. He hit the ring and he saved me. Uh, we went to the desk. Uh, I was bleeding pretty bad, and uh, you know, I I thanked him, and uh, and we made up right there. I took him as a partner, and we won the belts together again, man. Wow. Uh, yeah. And all of a sudden, man, uh, Bob went from being a hated heel right back to being the hottest baby face in the territory. They <laughs> loved him. They loved him, right? Yeah. So two weeks later, guess what happened? Uh oh. I turned on him this time. <laughs> Hit him back against Stubbs and Arm, and we yeah. all three of us beat the hell out of Bob for me to get even <laughs> to Rick Flair back in 1982. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's where everything turned around again. I became the hottest heel in Southeastern, man, overnight. You know, <laughs> I had gone from being a baby face for many years back to being a heel. 
And soon after that angle, my stud stable was born and uh, his sons obviously rallied around him. And Jimmy Golan, I made these proposals to join my stable and I offered him big money and no, no, no way. Finally, I came to the right money. And Jimmy said, hell yeah, Rod, I'm part of your stable <laughs> for as long as you want, right? And uh, yeah. then we tried, we'd go for Rob. We, and Rob would not take it. Rob wouldn't take any amount of money. He had never been a heel in his entire career at this point, you know, and he refused to join the stable. And in fact, he went just the opposite direction and he joined Bob and his boy. And he even went so far as then to wrestle against me and Jimmy in a cage. And his partner was Bob Armstrong. (laughs) And the loser of that cage match was going to have to leave Southeastern. Uh Uh-oh. So what do you figure happens that night? I do not remember any of this. Okay. That night, Rob turned on Bob. Well, of course. Three (laughs) of us bloodied him up. And because it was inside the cage, all three of his sons are just climbing and trying desperately to get in the cage. But we just kept knocking them off the cage and just killing him. We So we just decimated him, tore up his knee. Uh, we, We just bloodied him big time. The crowd was so angry, angry during the course of this cage match that we had a riot leaving the ring, and and uh, and on TV. So so Bob left Southeastern the following week. Came on TV with Gordon Soley. At this point, we've got we're doing a Continental. We're filming in Birmingham in front of six seven thousand people every week, and uh, so Bob comes on TV and he. You know, he, he says how much he's going to miss all of his friends, and he describes all the memories he's had of Southeastern Wrestling. And, uh, and uh, geez, I, I watch the monitors in the back while he's doing this, and they're showing people in the stands. That wasn't a dry ice and among 7,000 fans in Batwell Auditorium. Bob Armstrong, the, the great hero, is gone, you know. And he was, <laughs> so the next week, Along comes a guy that looks just like Bob Armstrong, especially his body, and uh, and he calls himself the bullet. Well, by golly, look at that. Things exploded for the next three years. <laughs> it was just it just it was amazing what happened in that time frame. Wow. Okay. So I do remember some of that. I remember the bullet part. It was amazing to watch every week. But that's now see. That's what many fans say your studcast, they say that's what it does. It makes them feel like they were there. You never knew what to expect at a Southeastern event. It seems like 1985 had as much happening between the two families as 1984. And it did. Uh, you know, but, but I want to highlight some of the other things uh, in this year, uh, 1985, that were happening that uh, kind of made this year unique. And all of this we're going to cover in these future studcasts uh, when we get there. Uh, Southeastern, by this point, had become Continental Wrestling when the TV show began to coming out of Birmingham's Boutwell Auditorium. When Gordon Soley became the commentator, the name of the company changed from Southeastern to Continental. That TV production was one of the best in the world. It, it was good enough that it was noticed by this huge production company in, uh, in Houston, Texas that got in touch with me and they, they talked me into sending my shows to the Middle East. And, uh, and we'd be talking about Continental Championship Wrestling being aired. And when we get to these studcasts in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Arab Emirates. Wow. And then 
we were we were being seen in other places in the world as well. So 1985 saw the return of uh, Southeastern wrestling. Like I said, not known as Southeastern anymore, but Continental. We went back in that same year to the original Southeastern home of Knoxville, Tennessee. So we got on TV in Knoxville again after six years of not doing anything there at all. And we also got on TV at the same time in Chattanooga, where we had never been. So we were getting a bigger area up north. So it wasn't just a triumphant return to the Coliseum with that first wrestling sellout since I'd been there six years early. We had proven the strength and the perseverance and came back as popular. We came back, I think, maybe even more popular than we ever were when we went back with Continental Wrestling. And Continental Wrestling that year was going to expand from the Gulf Coast all the way to almost to the Ohio line. So for the first time, we're going to run two major cities in the same day on Thanksgiving and Christmas. We're going to sell out both of them. We're going to continue uh, that for two more years. Continental began to have shows internationally. We had four events in the Cayman Islands over that two-year period of time. Uh, We were just uh, getting it cranked. In 1985, Continental Wrestling put your company up there with the biggest and the best in the sport. But by 86, wasn't WWF starting to invade a lot of territories around the country, Ron? Were you not hearing Vince's name a lot? Oh, yeah. Yeah, everybody was talking about that. If you're in the wrestling business, you were because of what was beginning to happen. Uh, So they they came to Birmingham, uh, you know, in 1986. and they. They wrestled right across the freeway from us. Uh, we were in Boutwell Auditorium. Uh, if you went on, you could walk underneath the freeway. And the, the big, largest building in Birmingham, Convention Center, was right across the street. They ran on the same night as we did in Boutwell, uh, same starting time. And that night, they brought many of their stars that we had developed years earlier to use against us on that night. Hogan was on that card. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beefcake, Brutus the Barber was on that card. The Honky Tonk Man was on that card. Uh, so uh, you know, uh, we were we were going to start dealing with it. It appeared that uh, they were going to start coming to uh, Continental area. So how did Continental do heads up against WWF in 1986? Well, Hogan and Wayne Ferris, Honky Tonk Man, and Ed Leslie—that was Brutus the Barber, Beefcake's real name. They came under the freeway that night to see our crowd. After they worked, they came over and came in the back door of the auditorium, uh, you know, and, uh, and they, they, they said hello to everybody. They shook hands and said hello to everybody. Wow. So we had planned. We knew they were coming. We knew they were going to be the same night. So what we did is we, we, we did a two-ring battle roar. And every time we ever did those, which was about once a year, we would raise the price by a dollar a ticket. Mm-hmm. But on this two-ring battle royal that night, we dropped the ticket price by a dollar instead wow. of raising. Wow, yeah. Okay. So when those guys walked over underneath the freeway and they came and pulled the curtain back on Boutwell stage, they were all three amazed. They had 1,500 people in that building across the street that held about 12,000 people. And we had 7,000. Wow. <laughs> They all three came to me and said, Ron, this is unbelievable. They go, we go everywhere. And he goes, we are always much, much bigger. He goes, 
look at your crowd. You're five times bigger than our crowd. They go, what the heck? How are y'all doing it? So yeah. the bottom line was they WWF never came back to Birmingham or to a continental city again after that before I sold my company. Wow. It just humiliated them. Uh, they just they, they never tried it again. So in 1986, we still had great talent. Gosh, we had Tommy and Johnny Rich, and they had a long run with a great team called the Nightmares, which is Danny yeah. Davis and Kenny Wayne. And then they, we had the feud with the Armstrongs. It cooled off a little bit. But then Rob and Jimmy and I, we had turned back babyface, and all of a sudden we had a great team to go against. We had the New Guinea, get, New Guinea Headhunters managed by Kevin Sullivan. Uh, you know, Sullivan had tremendous heat. Uh, we still had the Armstrongs in the crew, all of them. We had uh, Adrian Street in the crew now. We had the assassin Jody Hamilton, Mr. Wrestling 2 was wrestling pretty much every card, Wendell Cooley, uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard, the dirty white boy. We had a <laughs> budding superstar, Doug Furness, all, Brad, all the Armstrongs, uh, you know, except for Brad were part of that. Okay, so I know that in 1987, which I know you're going to be talking about next, you and your partner sold Continental Wrestling to the owner of a TV station in Montgomery, Alabama. His name was David Woods, right? Yep, that's correct. David Woods, yes. And he owned the television station in Montgomery. Uh, and his father owned the TV station in Dothan, Alabama. I worked for his father at the, the radio station that he also owned in Dothan uh, as right. well. Charles there Woods. you go. They, yeah. well, they were they were big media people, and uh, you know, so David decided he wanted to own Continental Wrestling. So, and it was at that point that I was already losing my enthusiasm for, for getting in the car and getting on a plane and going to work <laughs> all the time. I was what we called in wrestling burned out. I had I had been in it a long time. I had been under that stress for many many years. I've been wrestling actually wrestling for seventeen years at that point. But I'd been running my own companies and handling all that business, too, for 13 of those 17 years. So I realized that something unconquerable was basically on the horizon, that WWF was already chewing up other territories. They had a national television program. Their business plan for the demolition of the other territories out there was a diabolical one. And I just basically decided that selling it was better than losing it. So, uh, you know, Studcast during this time frame is going to give fans my honest impression of Vince Jr. We'll get into some real discussions about how I think Vince, what I think of Vince and how he handled taking over wrestling. Well, I can't, I, I have a hundred questions about that. So I want to ask them all and get answers right now. <laughs> yeah. You're back I, on her. You're back on Yeah, yeah I kind of know where you stand. Man. <laughs> All right. So I can't wait for those. So when we, when we come to your last year and last territory in 1987, USA Championship Wrestling in Knoxville, back to where it all began. How did this one get started? Well, I saw Continental. Uh, no, you know, and I owned a big, biggest percentage of it. And, uh, but I kept the old Southeastern Knoxville territory because it was never a part of the Gulf Coast wrestling or the Birmingham purchase. Also, I had never been fully paid for Knoxville from Jim Barnett, nor any of the wrestlers, the wrestler owners that he, that followed him in his aborted purchase to me, you know? Right. So I felt like, you know, uh, Knoxville, I still own. 
and I did still own it. I, so USA Wrestling had a sweet TV setup in the Coliseum Ballroom there in Knoxville. And uh, I brought in Gordon Soley to do the commentary. Uh, and uh, and then I, would, I did not wrestle. Uh, I was just a co-host for 26 wrestling programs there. And I wouldn't wrestle a single match uh, with USA Wrestling until the last event we ran. So we had a very good crew for a small territory. We had Bob Armstrong. We had Scott. We had Steve Armstrong. All of them went with me instead of staying with the new Continental owner. Uh, Scott and Johnny Rich and David Haskins, who, who we were going to use as David Davy Rich, uh, were the top tag team that we had, the baby faces. And we call them the party boys. And the other baby faces we had were Tommy Rich and Doug Furness, uh, Todd Morton. Uh, we had a pretty darn good group of guys. The heel there were absolutely phenomenal in that little company. The Mongolian Stomper, Moondog Rex, and the Masked Stormtrooper, all of them were managed by Ron Wright, <laughs> who did a great job with that group. And uh, <laughs> the RPMs, great tag team, were the top heel team. Uh, superstar Bill Dundee was in that crew. Buddy Landell was in that crew. And Hector Guerrero. Uh, so, you know, pretty decent group. Yeah. How do you, so you didn't wrestle, but you, you did co you co-hosted with Gordon. What was, I mean, how'd you do on that? Did you like that? Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed it. You know, I'd, I'd done all my wrestling that I really wanted to. And I, and I really enjoyed doing the program. And on the very last show, Mongolian Stomper wrestled this young kid named Todd Morton. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he, he busted that young boy open. Wow. Horribly. Oh. And uh, it he bled so bad that the, one of the few times that I'd seen television uh, stations do this, they 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 blurred out his face. Yeah, because oh, yeah. he was he yeah. was such a bloody mess. And I was the commentator with Gordon, and they couldn't stop it. Uh, I mean, uh, Ron Wright was involved. He would pull yeah. uh, wrestlers came to try to help this young kid out. Yeah. And uh, they would throw those guys over the top rope. Ron Wright was grabbing them by the legs. The moon dog was out there. The stormtrooper was out there. It was one of those deals in which uh, I finally told Gordon, I'm sitting there at the set. And I said, Gordon, mm -hmm. somebody's got to stop this. Right. And, uh, Gordon says, no, Ron, <laughs> no, don't do it. And, uh, and that was the first time I got involved. The next week we drew uh, almost a sellout in the Coliseum. That was the last match I ever wrestled. It wow. was against, uh, it was in August of 1988 against the Mongolian Stomper, who was the USA heavyweight champion. And uh, mm -hmm. I won that match and I still got that belt 30, 33 years later. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it, it sounds like a pretty solid group in 1988. So you, you did, you, you did pretty well with USA wrestling. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, Compared to a lot of other places, uh, you know, uh, still they were still left in the business, and there weren't a lot of other places by this point, 1988, that were still left unchallenged and uh, and still doing any business at all because of the way Vince was handling business. So we were averaging about a thousand in the smaller cities, a thousand a show, and about three thousand a show in the Coliseum. And that last Friday night we were there, it was more like five thousand. So we ran there for 26 weeks, and then my partner, Bob Polk, who is going to be my hockey partner later on, uh, we sold the USA company to David Woods, the same guy that bought Continental from us. Wow. So Bob Polk uh, and then uh, and I, uh, after that, uh, you know, uh, 
we found our way. Uh, basically, within a year's time, we found our way into another sport in 1989, <laughs> and that one was hockey. But but Dave, now that's another story for another time. Yeah, I kind of figured. I kind of figured on that one. All right, this is this has been a wonderful part two of Studcast number 200. These two Studcasts rolled into one are going to be classics as time goes by. So where are we going next? On the next, uh, on our next studcast, Ron, our last studcast from two weeks ago, number one ninety nine, featured you and Terry Funk in a Texas death match, no less. And the winner was going to meet Harley Race in June of nineteen seventy seven. That's kind of where we left off. So we're going to do what we always do, Dave. We're going to continue the story. We're going to go back to the next Southeastern card of May 19, 1977, the week after that match with Terry and I to see who wrestled Harley, a match in which I won, by the way. And uh, this next card on May 19, 1977, is a World Junior Heavyweight Championship match between the champion Nelson Royal and the man who was fast becoming a Southeastern sensation, the little big man from the United Kingdom, Tony Charles. Tony Charles getting his first shot at being world heavyweight, world junior heavyweight champion. That card also had a battle of the Far East for the Southeastern Championship. The champion Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., is going to face none other than Tor Tanaka. Tanaka and Stomper. Wow, that's that's a that's a whole match. That's a whole night in itself. Also on that card was a Southern Championship match, uh, Bob Armstrong against Jerry Lawler. And on that card, Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin, and my brother Robert were wrestling against the Von Steiger brothers, plus they had three other matches that night. We're going to have another today's training next week again. We're going to go back to that. We're going to have another learning tree question to answer, and we're going to take one of those deep dives into the TV show and we'll cover the attendance. All right. So, but before you go today, I, I know you're about to re- tell me everything that happened between you and Vince. Between me and Vince, yeah, I, you know, I had, I had Vince Senior, Vince, Vince, his father, Vince Senior, and I were very good friends. I really respected his father tremendously. Okay. I okay. never actually laid eyes on Vince Junior. Interesting, uh, and that was probably a good thing. Maybe for the best, okay? Yeah, that was probably a good thing because it might have been a situation yeah. to where I would have told him what I think, and uh, yeah. and if he yeah. didn't like it then I would have done much worse than tell him what you, I thought. You wouldn't have made him cry, would you? Oh, God, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story for another time, too, I think. Uh, I figured so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so before we end today, you know, Dave, I, I want to thank everybody, for obviously, for their support. And I hope we made this three-hour-plus uh, Studcast 200 as much fun for everybody out there as it was for me, and uh, hopefully you, too, Dave. and. Uh, uh, and please tell others about what we do here and ride with us again every week. Uh, and especially next week, we're going to get back rolling again. And uh, it's going to be another great studcast. So take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. Man, I'm telling you, I had a ton of fun. God bless you too, Stud. And thanks. It's so much fun to be a part of these studcasts. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller's studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. 
So fool Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.